and welcome back to the Stardust Lounge. This is Literary Guys. I'm Dr. Gordon McAllen. And I'm author Zachary Kellyan, and we are here for our third brunch at the Stardust, and things are really picking up around here. Well, after the first time, when I still am not entirely sure they were actually open, I, I think now we, this looks like quite the scene. Yeah, it's, it's really taken off, and we're here uh, on a very... Uh, perfect day to discuss uh, topics of masculinity and fight clubs and everything in between. It's Father's Day here. Which I also refer to as the final round of the U.S. Open. (laughs) Um, Happy Father's Day. I I know you're not an actual father, but you might be a daddy. (laughs) That is true. (laughs) So he is a daddy. I am a a single uh, man myself, but we, we both have fathers. Fathers play an important role in a lot of the backstories for the characters that we see in Fight Club. Gordon, I guess on, on this Father's Day to kind of recognize this moment, I've, I've got two questions for you. One, what is something really positive that you learned from your father? Well, th- that one's easy for me. For me, it's the idea of finding something that you want to achieve in and going after it. I'm really inspired by my dad that he grew up in a very blue-collar world and saw in himself that that wasn't necessarily the right life for him. And he went to college. He went and got an advanced degree in the sciences. This wasn't required of him. This wasn't even expected of him. And yet he went and did it. And that inspires me to to go say, like, what is it that I want to do? What is the work that I want to do? Yeah, and for me with my dad, I think kind of similar to yours guy with a strong blue collar background grew up in the foothills of Appalachia in West Virginia he uh, really probably saw some imperfect ideas of what it meant to be a man growing up in that environment I don't know that he was told that he was loved by some of the father figures in his life I don't know that Mm. he was allowed to express emotion or made to feel like that was okay my dad's a big burly guy very athletic he was a great athlete in his youth He has never made me feel like I have to ascribe to his definition of masculinity, just like he chose to go against the masculine archetypes he had by telling me he loved me every day and giving me affection and being open with his emotions about me. And I really respect that my dad was able to kind of buck that cyclical thing that we've seen throughout so many generations of men and allow me to kind of forge my own way and never make me feel like he's judging my definition of a man. As long as I feel like I'm doing what I feel like a man should do, I think my dad is proud of me, and that's probably the greatest gift he's ever given me. That's fantastic. Second question, Mm -hmm. could you take your dad in a fight? Ooh, that's a good question. So what ages would we be in this scenario? Part one, right now. You you fight your dad today. So we're up to three questions at this point, I think. Okay. You fight your dad today, Mm -hmm. or you fight your dad in your prime, both in your prime. Okay. Ooh, this is good. So right now, I would take my dad. He's in his late 70s, so I think I'm going to win that fight. That's not going to be a problem. Now, both in our prime. This is interesting because I think my dad would still take me, but I don't know. It's going to be kind of close. You're taller than your dad. Yeah, this is the thing. Like I'm taller, and I think I'm more fit. But he was more muscular in mm. his prime. So it would be an interesting challenge. You know, I don't know. Maybe uh, 12 rounds, uh, you know, Queensberry rules and see what happens. I and mean, there's only one way to settle it, really. Uh, with my dad, I could take my dad now, uh, but I can only have said that in probably the last like six months. Uh, my dad is a much larger man than I am, a much more physically imposing man than I am. So he would have mopped the floor at me 
both in our primes at just about any other time. But hey, I'm proud to say I could beat my dad up today. My elderly father, I could probably take today. What a, probably. What a I like how there's still a qualifier <laughs> in that Happy sentence. Father's Day to us all. Happy Father's Day. Well, today on Literary Guys, we're going to be talking about sort of the second half of the book, or pretty much everything leading up to the final conclusion. But what does that mean? It means Project Mayhem. Project Mayhem. This book takes a turn. This book definitely takes a turn with Project Mayhem. That is for sure. We think we know where it's going, and uh, Tyler Durden slash our narrator take it in a whole new direction. Do you think it's actually a good direction? No, I think I think it's. I guess the 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 allegory that I would see in today's world, from twenty twenty one, is the men's rights movement. It's not something we've really talked about on this podcast very much. But I think in Fight Club, we see men who, granted, they shouldn't be beating the crap out of each other. That's probably not the healthiest way. But they're, they're seeking solace. They're seeking some kind of balance in their lives, which is a good thing. And I think when you look at something like the men's rights movement, on the surface, there probably are some good intentions, you know, uh, advocating for fathers in divorce who's might feel like the courts are against them because of their gender in terms of getting access to their children. So there's there's certain, and you know, a, a lot of men's rights groups are also very up on sexual assault against men, which is not something that men really report typically and is a huge miss in terms of our support structure for those men. So I think there's some good things that come out of the men's rights movement, but then you needn't dig too far to see some of the really ugly things, like the Proud Boys that have comes out of the men's rights movement. So I'm wondering if we can kind of make this allegory of men, boys being boys being a good thing initially, and then getting really out of hand very quickly. Well, is it safe to call Project Mayhem a cult? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a terrorist cell slash cult for sure. They even have names for their uh, their lackeys, uh, I believe, Space Monkeys. Yes. Which is, is such a monkeys. clever... You don't know why he's saying Space Monkeys at first. He just starts dropping the name. But then the analogy that he uses, which I think is wonderful, is the, the dogs and the rats and the monkeys that we sent out into space who were just trained to push a button or pull a lever. And they were doing amazing things, but they had no concept of what they were really doing or why they were being asked to do it. And so I really like that that's the nickname he kind of gives to Tyler Durden's disciples. Mm -hmm. And to our readers and listeners, if you like making soap and are into the artisanal soap movement, then this part of the book is for you. You know, I'm reminded of Herman Melville's Moby Dick where a good chunk of the novel is just inaccurate whale anatomy. And I think this is the uh, inaccurate whale anatomy of this novel. There is just chapter on chapter on making soap. And I I don't, is it even accurate? I don't even know. Well, I doubt that even if it was accurate, that this would be an efficient or cost-effective way to make soap. So, you know. I think think obviously it, it works as a metaphor that I think is really brilliant of the literal fat of society and that is what Project Mayhem is feeding off of. The excess and the gluttony of commercialism and capitalism made real in forms of uh, red garbage bags full of people's fat. It's, it's, pretty, uh, it's a pretty visceral image, but I think it really works. It is a very good image. I, I will say that. And, and when you realize that's what's happening, it kind of clicks. Yeah. Like, there are a number of pieces of this book that fit together nicely as a puzzle. And I think that's good. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, at this point in the novel, yeah, uh, the fight clubs have gotten completely out of hand. We're seeing Tyler Durden less and less. 
our narrator's kind of adrift in this machine of Project Mayhem. He doesn't really know his role. He kind of views his role as friend of Tyler, maybe. Mm-hmm. He's not one of the lackeys. You know, he hasn't shaved his head. He's not one of the, uh, he calls them the mechanics, the guys who just can't get enough of fighting and who will only fight each other at this point because no one else dare fight them because they're just sadistic and seem to feel no pain. You know, he's, he's not any of these guys. He doesn't know what his role is in this, but he's just kind of swept up in the whole thing uh, to the point where he's kind of sent about... This is set in New York, I believe. Is, is that your take on it? It's either New York or L.A. Well, it's on the East Coast for sure based on the time adjustments that he has to make. Oh, that's correct. Uh, yeah, yeah. On a flight. So it's somewhere on the East Coast. So let's say New York. Um, I, and I think, you know, he's sent on all these various tasks by Tyler Durden that he doesn't really seem to understand. But we get some of the book's best chapters, I think, here uh, in this section. I may be remembering this incorrectly, but the one chapter that really just soured me on hmm. this book, like I already was kind of like, this is just pointlessly angry in so many different places but i believe it's around this part of the book where the narrator slash tyler gets into a fight with a man who he thinks is very attractive yes and angel face exactly and just destroys this man and that's not why that man went to fight club i can guarantee you that is not why he was there and it actually doesn't align at all with the let's get in a schoolhouse brawl in the back Mm -hmm. of a bar that this is just about anger and it is about destruction and i think that was the point in the book where i was just like i've had enough of this i don't need to read any more of this because this is not about a social message anymore this is about just someone wanting to vent their rage in a sadistic way i believe too a big part of that is about destroying something beautiful that it is it is important that this guy is a good-looking guy has kind of a baby angel face and what do you think that says about masculine nature do you think men have a desire to destroy beautiful things it is a recurring theme in history it is a recurring theme in literature and the arts so i believe that there is something to it however i also think that when we get to that point we need to ask ourselves why i agree and the narrator certainly does ask himself why later on in the book but at this point he's too deep in and he doesn't take kind of see the forest for the trees now the only thing i would counter is i agree with you that is not why fight club was invented that's not why somebody like angel face would have gone to fight club he does show up later to be a part of the space monkeys he's i think the first man on the porch when the call goes out what do you make of that i think it's a literary device in order to try and bring some sort of forgiveness or reconciliation to the reader that this happened but at that point it was too late i'd already checked out i got you i I can see where you're coming from absolutely it is a i mean there's a lot of violence in this book if you are squeamish at all about gore or senseless acts of brutality this is certainly not the book for you and there's there's a lot of it there I liked the uh, angel face thing, but I think I also have a different perspective on it because I've read another of Chuck Palahniuk's books. This is a real thing called Fight Club for Kids. It's a pictorial children's book that he wrote where everything rhymes. And, you know, the first rule of horsing around club is you don't talk about horsing around club. Mm-hmm. But the it goes off the rails 
about six or seven pages in when we get to the angel face part of the novel, Chuck Palahniuk just kind of takes over from this sing-songy children's author voice to say, and of course, the guy had to be played by Jared Leto in the movie because Jared Leto's a beautiful model and F that guy and F his beautiful face and I'm just going to turn it into hamburger meat and then it just becomes this R-rated rant against Jared Leto and then the children's book kind of ends. Yeah, so that seems pretty consistent then with uh, with what I'm saying. Yeah, Chuck Palahniuk is uh, he doesn't he doesn't like pretty boys. We we can we can assume that. Well, that is his loss. Anyhow, so one of the themes that I wanted to touch on in today's episode that I think Project Mayhem, if we strip out some of these awful things that to me were a significant turnoff to this part of the book, but one of the themes that starts to really come up here is part of masculine nature is the ability to say. I am going to choose my own fate. I am going to choose who I am. And it comes up time and time again. I'd like to read a few sections having to do with that. When Tyler invented Project Mayhem, Tyler said the goal of Project Mayhem had nothing to do with other people. Tyler didn't care if other people got hurt or not. The goal was to teach each man in the project that he had the power to control history. We, each of us, can take control of the world. And then, in the same chapter, what we have to do, people, Tyler told the committee, is remind these guys what kind of power they still have. Yeah, and they do that in some pretty dramatic ways. There's that whole chapter of the man by the name of Raymond K. Hessel, or Raymond K.K.K.K.K.K.K. Hessel, the the guy that our narrator abducts on the street, holds up at gunpoint, takes his wallet, and basically tells him he's got to the count of three to give him a reason to live, for, for Raymond Hessel to declare his reason to live. And it is this, on the face, this senseless act of violence. But what really intrigued me about this chapter was the thought of, you know, you hear all the time, People say, you know, ever since that car accident, I just have a new outlook on life. Ever since I beat cancer, I have a new outlook on life. It seems like we in modern society sometimes need to face, literally face death before we can actually truly live, before Mm -hmm. we can take the risks that we want to take. I think that Chuck Palahniuk is really touching on that in Fight Club. What is your take on that? You know, you are somebody who has always followed his dreams. I feel like I have too. Mm Mm-hmm. What's going on with the people who can't, the people who get stuck in those ruts? And what does that say about how we're raising our children, how we're raising our sons, what, we're, what example we're setting as men? I think there's a lot to that question. One of the things that immediately comes to mind is about happiness and understanding, like constantly asking yourself, am I happy? Am I content? Mm-hmm. Am I... And in and, and those two things, we talked about contentness before, yeah. and it's very easy to be content. In fact, we're in a world now where we don't have to leave our homes to still be content. We can order groceries, have delicious food brought to us. We can watch Netflix and Amazon Prime and Disney Plus and all these different streaming services, constant entertainment, Mm -hmm. video games. You don't have to go buy a disc anymore. It just comes to you. It's very easy to just say, I am going to ride along that stream of just media consumption and doing the thing which it makes me moderately happy. Like, Mm -hmm. I may be misquoting this, but from the musical company by Stephen Sondheim, 
that of the primary character, Robert. One of the characters remarks, he doesn't have the good things and he doesn't have the bad things, but he doesn't have the good things either. I think that that really speaks to that. Like, I think we've gotten into a world where if you want to avoid like really bad things happening, you can kind of live in a safe place. And the world will let you now. It literally will let you do that. And I think that's part of what the narrator is seeing. Like, yeah, you like salad dressing? Sure, you can have 17 kinds of fat-free salad dressing in your refrigerator. But is that actually making you happy? And if you are a Fight Club fan who is just joining us for this series about Fight Club and you were not expecting a Stephen Sondheim reference, welcome to Literary Guides. Yeah, apparently we're not just sticking with written literature, but also light opera, or we can have that debate about what Stephen Sondheim actually creates in our sister podcast, Talking Sondheim. Uh, I think it's called Sounding Off on Sondheim. Um, yeah, I think you're right. I think that there is that element of contentment that living in a first world nation with the freedoms that we have here in the United States it is very easy. You know, it's like a, it's like getting out of a warm bath. You don't really want to. You know, it's, it's there, you're feeling all right, but you're not feeling great. I also really think that there's an interesting tie into fear. A lot of the friends that I've had, and I think probably the same for the friends that you have had, who maybe didn't meet up, live up to their full potential or would tell us that they didn't live up to their full potential, did so out of fear. Fear of the unknown, mm-hmm. fear of change, fear of taking a risk, fear of having it backfire on them and be embarrassed or, or what have you. And what's interesting in this novel is that's kind of the role that Fight Club plays for a lot of these men. Once you've gotten absolutely destroyed by another man's fists in a sub-basement of a bar, you don't have a lot to fear from your day-to-day corporate gig or your day-to-day job as a waiter or what have you. And I think as the population, as the men in this novel become desensitized to that fear, they have to continually ramp up the fear, be it you know, pointing guns at each other's heads, playing chicken with oncoming traffic in the middle of the night. It's a very dark sense of kind of playing with fear and using the power that fear can bring us in maybe more destructive ways than, than we normally would. So I agree with what you're saying, but I want to kind of pull this back to the, the, yeah. the, the point we were on a moment ago, which is about masculinity and the ability to choose your own fate. Mm-hmm. And I think what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing is that it is a common masculine trait to have a dream of an accomplishment of wanting to to do something, be it to to be a veterinarian, be it to... Yeah, the, uh, Raymond K. Hessel wanted to be a, a veterinarian, and our narrator said, okay, you know, and this was under duress at gunpoint. He seemed to surprise himself with the revelation that he wanted to be a veterinarian. And then our narrator, Joe Everyman, is basically like, okay, I know where you live now. I'm going to check up on you in three months, in six months, in a year. And if you're not further along the way to becoming a vet, you're going to die. I think it's a common trait of masculinity to have a dream and to think of bigger things. I think it is an uncommon trait these days to actually be able to see past the fear that you are talking about. Yeah, you know, at the end of the day, even though we live in this modern world as modern humans, we're we're tribal by nature. And if you think about tribes, you know, a thousand years ago, we all had roles within that tribe. If your dad was the head hunter, you grew up to be the head hunter. If your dad was the tanner, you grew up to be the tanner. Um, I think there's a lot more complexities in day-to-day life, so it's, it's not as easy to navigate. There's not just one path to follow. But because there's not just one path to follow, there's also not one specific totem to latch onto in terms of, okay, now I am a man. 
back in the day, a thousand years ago, it's like, here's your knife. You're 13 years old. Here's your knife. Go out into the wilds and don't come back until you've killed something. Then you're a man and no one questions it. And because we don't have such a clear and easy path into manhood and into our roles in our society, in our modern day tribes, I feel like now it's we're all a little bit adrift. No one really knows when they become a man. No one knows when they have rightfully succeeded. No one knows if they're on the right path because mm-hmm. we don't have as much guidance to tell us. And I think that's kind of what Fight Club is trying to get to the heart of. You know, it was true in the mid-90s. It's certainly true today. For men and women, I think we're all just a little bit lost as society kind of advances beyond the initial scope of humanity. So for our listeners, when you say headhunter, do you mean the hunter who's in charge, the cannibal, or the person who's in charge of sifting through all of the resumes in order to find the best hunter to have in the tribe. If I've learned anything, you are not a man until you get a LinkedIn request. Well, yeah, what, what do you think about, about that, about men maybe not having a strong a tie to their masculinity because there's not a clear and direct path into what that means anymore? I think you're really on to something. In my view, it's not necessarily even about being like the best at something or mm-hmm. in achieving since we're talking about fathers here that where I grew up and with my dad and with so many people in my family that getting a job at one of the car plants in Detroit and holding it down for your entire career that that was a very respectable thing that was a very masculine thing to do absolutely showing up working the work doing what you need to do and being a steady provider and a good husband and all of those things and not questioning the world, being that stoic individual, like that's a very clear path to masculinity and to to express these things. Like you, you say there's no clear path. That was a path. Mm-hmm. There was no shame in that. You know, we're sitting here talking about you know, here we are two guys doing a podcast and like self-actualizing <laughs> in the world of 2021 and our hands blemish free. Exactly. Yeah. So it's difficult to think about what this means in the context of maybe 70 years ago when what we're doing right now would, wouldn't even fit into that view of masculinity at all. It would no. actually be, you know, it would be considered weak. And Just a couple of chatty Cathy's. Exactly. So, you know, what is it that we're doing? Are we, you know, providing for a family by doing yeah. a podcast? Like, no, it, you know, and both of us are single. Both of us are, you know, relatively old in the the parlance of the 1940s 1950s mm-hmm. to to not be married to not have a family you could look at what we're doing now through that lens and be like Psh, these guys aren't men at all yeah, absolutely when did that change why did why was there that shift because i think you're right i think there was certainly a time when you know if you were a parent you'd be proud to say your son worked the assembly line at an auto plant If you were a woman marrying a man, everyone would be envious that your husband had such a steady job and worked for a union. And now I feel like that's kind of shifted the other way where it's like, oh, he only works at assembly line. He doesn't have a college degree. You know, what is he really accomplishing in life? And and I, I don't view it that way. I know you don't view it that way. Society has so many roles for people to fill. And there is such pride in a good, hard day's, honest day's work. Mm-hmm. We've talked about that a few times now. Yeah. I, I just don't know when that shift happened. When did the, the Wall Street bros and the real estate bubble tycoons become more manly than the guys who are just putting on a hard day's work with their hands? 
I'm gonna say that I think it really started in Gen X. Okay. And the reason I say that was that we saw a lot of people who were somehow able to carry on the dual identity of being hip and cool and going to clubs and being progressive artists and and yet, yeah, they, they still held down a job. They still were very productive individuals. They found a way to balance those two things. They weren't just adrift in the world, and they also weren't just a cog in the machine. Sure. They became both, and I think Gen X is when we started to see that emerge. I agree. So we're getting near the end of the episode, but I don't think we've spoken about our sponsor for today. While you're finding the copy here, I do want to read one of the shortest quotes in this book, but I do think it speaks to the point of the anger that we see from the characters in this part of the book. I wanted the whole world to hit bottom. I mean, honestly, I think that really just sums up the anger and the disgust that exists in the narrator at this point. Yeah. And, I mean, I get it. Someone very wise told me that this book is the perfect book to read when you're in your early 20s. And I can't disagree with them. See, you found the copy there? I do. I do, yes. Um, This is not an ad for Project Mayhem. Project Mayhem does not exist. We do not talk about Project Mayhem. If Project Mayhem did exist, which it does not, Tyler Durden, who does not exist, would always be right. This is not an ad for Project Mayhem. That seems like wasted money. Well, it does, but also I think it's pretty clear that the fourth rule of Project Mayhem is Tyler Durden is always right, is it not? Yeah. So it seems like a lot of these places who are sponsoring us recently really are kind of throwing their money away. You know, we're, we're a new podcast, so I, I don't know why we're getting sponsors to begin with. We don't quite have the viewership or the listeners to, uh, to justify it, so mm-hmm. we just take what we can get. Okay. Well, I think this has been a, a really good discussion. I... I think that the themes that come out in this part of the book, while I do find them distasteful, mm. that they're not without merit of discussion. So I would say I've, I've enjoyed this discussion that we've been having much more than I enjoyed actually reading the book on this particular topic. Yeah, and I think you bring up a great point. Chuck Palahniuk is not for everybody. And I think that there's a lot of shock artists out there that just mean to shock. And to me, the difference here is he's an artist, so he is shocking artfully. And I think if you can make that distinction, which I know you can, you can at least use it for a good jumping off point, even if the book didn't work for you. I think that's a good point, And I think our discussion today speaks to that. So for our listeners who want to stay in touch. Yeah, you can follow us on social media at Literary Guys on Twitter. You can also go to LiteraryGuys.com. You can follow me at Z-A-C-K-E-L-L-I-A-N. Or you can follow me at Gordon McAllen. That's G-O-R-D-O-N-M-A-C-A-L-L-A-N. You can also follow my split personality at Tyler Durden. Is that a MySpace account? (laughs) I think it's a Friendster. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Anyhow, as always, thanks to the Stardust Lounge. Thanks to Edgar Bergamot. Congrats on the great brunch launch that they have done. They've really made this a happening scene in Seattle. No, I'm wondering at this point if literary guys may start to be recorded at brunch but yeah um edgar bergamot playing away he won't give me all of the details but i saw him wearing a space monkey t-shirt so i am a little worried but then again maybe he's just following them around on tour so with that this has been literary guys signing off